So, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's page 1802 in the Red Bibles if you're using one of those. Two Corinthians chapter 11. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, no one in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. 
Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Thanks, Nick, for reading. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul, for this letter that he wrote. And we thank you for the presence of your Spirit who uh, caused these words to be written. The Spirit who enables us to understand. We pray that he would be our teacher and our guide this morning, that uh, you would give us concentration, energy of mind, and uh, soft heart, and readiness of will to put into practice the things that you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in 2 Corinthians, the penultimate talk in our sermon series. I don't know about you, as I've wrestled with this letter, I've grown to really love it. I've come to see uh, more of the Apostle Paul as he really bears his heart in this letter. He's like an anxious parent, full of pastoral concern for the Christians in Corinth that he, that he helped to establish as a new church. We know from Acts chapter 18, he spent about 18 months in the city, and yet after leaving, new leaders have come into the church and gained a following. They're, they're slandering Paul, and in subtle ways, they're leading the Corinthians away from Paul and away from the true gospel. A big feature of the ministry of these newcomers is a focus on outward appearance. They had an impressive image they uh, looked good, they sounded good. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is responding to that situation. In the opening chapters of the letter, he describes his message and his ministry. Paul preached the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, a message that seemed utterly foolish in the culture of the day. Listen to what Paul says in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul preached the message of the cross, Christ crucified, and his ministry matched up. His ministry was one in which God worked powerfully in and through weak, ordinary people like Paul and like us. That was Paul's message and that's what characterized his ministry, God's power in human weakness. In the closing chapters of the letter, Paul is desperately pleading with the Corinthians not to be taken in by these newcomers, by these imposters, to remain loyal to Jesus and to embrace true Christian ministry. The passage we're looking at this morning is, if you like, Paul's last roll of the, the dice, his last desperate effort 
to get the Corinthians to see sense. Gary Miller says in his helpful commentary, Paul writes here with tears in his eyes and his tongue firmly in his cheek. Did you spot that as we went through all the exclamation marks, all the sarcasm? Paul is doing what Proverbs advises, to answer a fool according to his folly. He's responding to the Corinthians and their new leaders according to their not inconsiderable folly. So in 11.1 to 15, he deals with their idiocy. And then from 11.16 and through to, we're actually going to go to 12 verse 10, he paints a picture of true wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. So firstly, 11.1 to 15, how to be a complete idiot in four simple steps. That's what you came to learn this morning, wasn't it? How to be a complete idiot in four simple steps. Step one, ignore the people who love you most. Ignore the people who love you most. Look at verse one again. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul describes himself here as father of the bride. It's a great picture when you think of it, a great picture of true Christian ministry because it makes it clear Paul's intimately involved, but it's not ultimately about him. Paul is committed to helping the Corinthians to be faithful to their husband, to Christ, and not run off with someone else. And it's not going well. The Corinthians have been seduced by slick suitors and Paul is desperately trying to talk some sense into them. Paul loves them. Titus loves them. God himself loves them. How could they so quickly abandon the people who've invested so much in them? But if you want to be an idiot, you'll ignore the people who love you most. We're all drawn to people who say nice things about us, aren't we? But the reality is, if someone is only ever saying nice things about you, they're simply not telling the truth. None of us are that good. The people who love us most want us to grow, and that will mean that they say the things that need to be said. They'll say things that make us sad, as we were thinking a few weeks ago. Do you have people like that in your life? If not, pray for them. And if so, thank God for them and listen to them. Or if you want to be a complete idiot, shut them out. The second step follows on from the first. Ignore the people who love you most, the people telling you the truth, and swap the truth for lies at every opportunity. Step two, swap the truth for lies at every opportunity. In verse three, Paul compares the Corinthians being led astray by these new teachers to Eve being deceived by the devil in the Garden of Eden. And you might think, that's a bit full on, Paul. I mean, sure, there were things that were concerning about these new leaders, but satanic? Really? But Paul is clear. Their teaching is not just teaching with a different emphasis. They're teaching a different Jesus. They're teaching a different gospel. And the Corinthians, verse 4, are going along with it. They're swapping the truth for lies. Paul doesn't mince his words. He says down in verse 13, such people are false apostles. They're deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. 
And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Now we saw last week Paul exercises his leadership authority with gentleness and humility. But when the gospel is at stake, he is deeply intolerant. He will not compromise on the truth. He's ready to fight. See, when there's poison in the water supply, or when there are cancer cells in the body, you don't follow a policy of tolerance. You take decisive action because lives are on the line. Now, my own personality is conflict avoidance. I am a peacemaker. And I recognize that there's a danger. The church that I lead will be the same. So will you please pray with me that we as a church, and particularly for us as leaders of the church, that we will be faithful in holding to the truth and discerning of when the gospel is being distorted and a response is required, and that we'll be courageous, willing to be unpopular for the sake of Christ, fighting for the truth of the gospel in order to preserve the health of the church. Pray that God will protect us from being deceived and led astray. Unless we want to be complete idiots, in which case we'll swap the truth for lies at every opportunity. Which brings us to step three of Paul's mini-guide. And step three is, I think, the key. Be impressed by show. Be impressed by show. Be taken in by outward appearance. We don't know if Paul coined the term super apostles, or if they did, but it's pretty clear how he feels about it. Verse 5, he says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. The Corinthian church had had more exposure to the greatest apostle ever than anyone else. And yet, they didn't rate him. They had ditched Paul in order to follow these new leaders because they were so outwardly impressive. Now, before we dismiss them for their folly, it's worth recognizing we're all susceptible to being taken in, to being impressed by show. Gary Millett helpfully points out, this is often because of our own insecurities. And this certainly rings true for me. When someone shows up who is strong in areas in which I'm weak, I can easily be blind to their weaknesses. So impressed by their strengths and their show that I don't see their failings. We know from Paul's first letter that the Corinthians were not a particularly impressive bunch. Paul says not many of them were wise or influential by human standards. And so when people turned up who were influential leaders with strong personalities and eloquent, wise-sounding teaching and lots of rave reviews from other people, well, the Corinthians' humble background meant that they were susceptible to being overly impressed. It's worth asking, what kind of person gets through your defenses? Because they're just a little bit like the person you wish you were. So if you want to be a complete idiot, ignore those who love you most, swap the truth for lies, be overly impressed by show, 
Finally, step four, respect those who exploit you. Respect those who exploit you. You can't fail to pick up the sense of frustration that Paul felt at the behavior of this church. Paul had done his very best to help them be true to Jesus, true to the gospel, but his efforts kept rebounding. Even his commitment not to charge them, to conduct his ministry free of charge. Verse 7, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. Now Paul knew in the culture of the day, speakers got paid. And the assumption was you get what you pay for. And therefore, speakers who don't charge, well, they're not worth listening to. And yet Paul was not going to compromise on the freeness of the gospel. God has given us everything as a free gift. And therefore, Paul was willing to go against all the cultural norms. He was willing to work, as we know from Acts 18, as a tent maker to supply for his, his own needs. Now, in the culture, manual labor was seen as degrading. He lowered himself and is accused of sin as a result. He even takes money from other churches so as not to be a burden to the Corinthians. But he's so committed to preserving the freeness of God's grace. He's not going to let anything confuse that message. That is partly why we don't pass a plate in our Sunday services. We don't want anyone who is visiting to think that coming to church is about paying to receive religious goods and services. But the Corinthians, they don't value Paul's humility and self-sacrifice. They've been so taken in by these false teachers that they see the fact that Paul works for free as a negative thing. Verse 11, it's evidence that Paul doesn't love us because he doesn't rip us off. It's crazy thinking. They're rejecting Paul and they're respecting people who are exploiting them. Look down to verse 20. Paul says, in fact, you put up, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. Again, it's easy to dismiss the Corinthians, but we need to remember it's much easier to see the blind spots of others than our own. As we've seen, they were particularly susceptible to being impressed by a showy image and a strong personality. Once taken in, the other things just followed on. They ignored the people who loved them, they lost hold of the truth, and they went along with whatever these new impressive leaders said, however crazy it was. We're all prone to being taken in, in different ways, by different people. Being an idiot sadly comes remarkably easy. We need to pray that God makes us wise which is exactly where Paul takes us in the second part of this passage, as he paints an extraordinary picture of true wisdom. So we've concluded the mini-guide on how to be a complete idiot, now how to be truly wise, how to be wise, from verse 16. Let me say, this is a confusing section because Paul boasts and he's clearly uncomfortable doing it because he tells us again and again 
he's uncomfortable doing it. But he seems to think he has no, op no option. So verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate, tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. Paul is saying, look, indulge me for a minute. You're so into boasting, let me have a go. He is taking the false teachers on at their own game. He's answering them in kind in order to expose the real difference between them. See, the false teachers were boasting about their outward impressiveness, their giftedness, their strengths, their successes. Paul boasts of his weakness. It's there in verse 30. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. He says the same thing over the page in 12 verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. And then spells out what he's talking about in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. This is true wisdom, says Paul. And so in this section, 11.16 to 12.10, we see him boasting not in his successes but in his sufferings and not in the wonders that God has revealed to him but in the weaknesses that God has called him to endure. Not in his successes but his sufferings, not in wonders but weakness. And in doing so, Paul is demonstrating true wisdom. He's demonstrating what it is to walk in the way of the cross the way of suffering and sacrificial service, the way of experiencing God's power in human weakness. So in verses 16 to 33, he boasts not in successes but in sufferings. The false teachers, it seems, were boasting in their impeccable Jewish heritage. And Paul says, look, I could match them on every point. I'm speaking as a fool, but if you're so impressed by these things, are they Hebrews? Tick. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I'm a better servant of Christ. Now at this point, you might expect Paul's CV to run something like this. I'm a better servant than Christ. I've preached in more places. I've written more books. I've written half the New Testament. I've seen more converts. I've planted more churches. I've spoken to bigger crowds. But Paul doesn't go there for one second. If he's going to boast, he'll boast about greater labors, more imprisonments, countless beatings, the fact he's been shipwrecked three times, spent a day and a night in the open sea, He's faced all manner of dangers, hunger and thirst, cold exposure, and the constant anxiety for the churches, not least the church in Corinth. Paul says, if you want to be wise, then boast in your sufferings, not your, not your successes, because that's the way of the cross. That's the way of Jesus. Self-denial, suffering, sacrificial service. 
So boast in suffering, not success. And secondly, boast in weakness, not wonders. Turn to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, at this stage, it all gets a bit weird because Paul starts talking in the third person. Let me read from verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Probably a reference to the Holy of Holies, God's throne room. Uh, caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now you get to that point and you think, great story, Paul. You've basically told us you don't know what happened and you haven't even told us who it is. But it's pretty clear that Paul's talking about himself. Why does he talk in the third person? We've already seen that he's uncomfortable talking about himself. And now he's relaying a pretty um, privileged experience. And so he's doubly sensitive. But the vision isn't the point. Like Paul says, he doesn't even really know what it was. But he talks about it because it seems the false teachers, again, had all kinds of stories of supernatural experiences. And Paul says, verse 6, look, I could go there too. And if I did, I'd be speaking the truth. But actually, if you're going to judge someone, you should do it on what they do and say, not on the basis of some impressive experience that they tell you they've had. And for Paul, even this privilege led to a deeper experience of weakness. He says in verse 7, to keep him from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now Paul doesn't tell us what the thorn is, presumably some kind of physical ailment, physical pain. As an aside, it's interesting that Paul says it was a messenger of Satan sent to torment him, and yet it's clearly under God's control. God in his sovereignty was using this thorn, this messenger of Satan, to accomplish his work in Paul's life, to humble him. Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away, but the Lord said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. He doesn't just boast about his weaknesses. He boasts gladly. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight there it is again, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is true wisdom, to boast in our sufferings and our weaknesses. Now this doesn't mean our sufferings and weaknesses are pleasurable. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan tormenting him. Nor does it mean that we can't take action to try and minimize our suffering 
and weakness. Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take it away. But it does mean that we recognize God can and often does do his best work through suffering and weakness. Very quickly, as we finish, here are three things that God accomplishes through weakness. Firstly, he humbles us. Paul's thorn in the flesh was given to keep him from becoming conceited, becoming arrogant in the great revelations that he'd received. In God's economy, Christ-like character is more valuable than comfort. Let me say that again. Christ-like character is more valuable than comfort. Humility is more important than freedom from pain. God uses weakness to humble us. Secondly, he uses weakness to deepen our dependence on him. Paul prayed for the thorn to be taken away, but the Lord replied, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul said a similar thing in chapter 1. He said, we were beyond our ability to endure. But he recognizes that that happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God uses experiences of weakness to break down our pr proud self-reliance and to deepen our trust in his all-sufficient grace. God uses weaknesses to humble us, to deepen our dependence. Thirdly, he uses weaknesses to glorify his son. As we walk in the way of the cross, the way of suffering and weakness, we follow our savior. We reflect him. We become a showcase for the power of Jesus. Not power to remove our weakness from us, but power to endure our weakness with trust and joy. John Piper says, the deepest need that you and I have in weakness and adversity is not quick relief, but the well-grounded confidence that what is happening to us is part of the greatest purpose of God in the universe, the glorification of the grace and power of his son, the grace and power that bore him to the cross and kept him there until the work of love was done. That's what God is building into our lives through our weakness. So the question to ask ourselves as we finish is this. What are we boasting in? In other words, what, what do we prize? What do we value? Is it our outward success and material comfort? Or is it Christ? Ultimately, is our life about us or about him? About his glory? Is our, is our life, is what we value, wanting to trust Jesus, wanting to be like Jesus, wanting others to see Jesus? and being willing to endure any suffering, hardship, insult, persecution, and experience of weakness to achieve that end. What's your life about? Is it about you, your success, your comfort, or Jesus and his glory?
Let's pray. Father, show us where we need to repent of being idiots, overly impressed by show and outward impressiveness. Lead us in the way of true wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. Give us a heart that value, prize, treasure Christ above all else. So that we'd be willing to accept weaknesses and hardships and difficulties. That you might do your work in us to make us more like your son. And do your work through us to spread his fame, his fame abroad. We pray for his namesake. Amen.